This is a podcast about Vancouver, our community, our culture, our quirks, and all the colors that combine to make our city of glass. My name's Mo Amir, and I'll be your host. This is Van Color. This is Van Color. The number of displaced people in the world is the highest it's been since World War II. As per the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, there are almost 70 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. More than 57% of displaced people are from three countries, Syria, Afghanistan, and South Sudan. This includes refugees, asylum seekers, and internally displaced people. Almost 45,000 people per day are forced to flee their homes because of conflict and persecution. Before we get into the podcast, I want to make a distinction between these three groups. A refugee is someone who has been forced outside their country of nationality and cannot return for fear of persecution because of their race, religion, nationality, or membership of a particular social group, which the Supreme Court of Canada ruled includes sexual orientation and gender identity. They comprise of about 37% of all forcibly displaced people. An asylum seeker is a person who is seeking international protection but whose claim for refugee status has not yet been determined. They comprise about 4% of forcibly displaced people. An internally displaced person is a person forced from their home as a result of conflict or insecurity, but have been unable to leave their country. In effect, they're stuck. They comprise about 59% of forcibly displaced people. This is a global humanitarian crisis. International relief efforts are chronically underfunded. Neighboring countries, such as Lebanon for Syrian refugees, host many more refugees than they can afford. This highlights the fact that most refugees are not coming to the United States, Canada, or Europe. In fact, the top five refugee-hosting countries are Turkey, Uganda, Pakistan, Lebanon, and Iran, particularly due to their close proximity to conflict areas. I want to be clear here. We are not talking about immigrants looking for a better economic future. We are talking about people who are looking to survive. As of January 2017, the latest available official data, Canada has demonstrated leadership in the global crisis and welcomed over 40,000 Syrian refugees. Now, I'm not suggesting that Canada can host all 70 million forcibly displaced people around the world, but I am saying that we have to continue to demonstrate world leadership and build global consensus to adequately fund international relief, to host refugees where and to the capacity that we can, and to remember that in all the rhetoric, some of which has been poisoned by ignorance, we are talking about people. And these people are amongst some of the most marginalized people in the world, including those in the LGBTQ community. Homosexuality is criminal in over 70 countries worldwide, with about half a dozen countries that still implement the death penalty for same-sex sexual acts. Today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by the inspirational LGBTQ refugee activist and Syrian-Canadian author, Danny Ramadan. Since his arrival to Vancouver in 2014, Danny's community contributions as a storyteller and activist are a testament to the strength of diversity in our community. 
As an activist, he's been involved in coordinating online and on-the-ground efforts to support queer and trans-identifying refugees from Syria to immigrate to Canada. He organizes the annual fundraiser, An Evening in Damascus, to support these efforts. Since May 2015, he has raised over $100,000 to support the safe passage of LGBTQ-identifying Syrian refugees. He was appointed Grand Marshal for the Vancouver Pride Parade in 2016, where he led the march with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Since his arrival to Canada, he's been awarded the Standout Award, RBC's Top Immigrant in Canada Award, and the Bonham Centre Award. His debut English novel, The Clothesline Swing, was named amongst the best books of 2017 by the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star. And it was also a finalist for the Lambda Award, fulfilling a personal dream of his. He's here to share his story. Danny Ramadan, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you, uh, you know, I'm almost parched reading your resume. It's so impressive, that all the things you've done since arriving here in Vancouver in four short years. I have no idea who that person is. I made up half of that. <laughs> no, no, that's all, that's all you. Don't be modest. <laughs> but, but honestly, I think you represent, you know, not only what's great about this country, but the people that make it great. And you've accomplished so much that first and foremost, I just want to congratulate you on, on your success. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for being on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just start right at the beginning with your, with your journey here. You were born in the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world where evidence of civilization dates back at least 11,000 years. So aside from your home life, what was it like in the 1990s growing up in Damascus? And what was Damascus like? Damascus is one of the most beautiful places I've ever had the pleasure of visiting or being part of. It's a, it's a beautiful community, a, a lovely city to be to be uh, born in. Uh, it's full of culture and heritage, and we have our own ways uh, ways of living. And, and um, I quite appreciated being part of that culture because it taught me so much about the history of humanity, the history mm-hmm. of how we came in together to become uh, communities and how to to uh, to build uh, a structure around yourself. I I grew up in in a culture that is um, very connected, very um, close close to each other. We we mm-hmm. grew up in a in a close uh, knitted family, and um, it was just a, a wonderful experience to be part of uh, such a beautiful culture that speaks such an elaborate, elegant language mm-hmm. and that has such a uh, long history in humanity in general. Is there a lot of national pride amongst Syrians knowing that you're one of, you know, you were a civilization in the cradle of civilization? There is. Yeah. I have to say there is. Now, um, it it has been hijacked by the political forces in, in, in Syria over, over the years. Mm-hmm. But you could tell that Syrians have a lot of pride in uh, in their identity as Syrians, in mm-hmm. their in their history and in the languages they they they, they carry. And um, you would see how we respect our own history. We respect the places that uh, that we grew up around and and I played in in as a child I played in the uh, Umayyad mosque okay. which is uh this beautiful uh humongous uh mosque in downtown Damascus it's literally the heart of Damascus it's at the center of the city okay. and it's around uh, a thousand years old wow. the mosque <laughs> and um it used to be a church before it was a mosque and before yeah. it was a church it used to be a synagogue and before that somebody uh, some some ancient um, civilization just uh, worshipped their own gods at the time. Yeah. So you'd find this spirituality 
mixed with a lot of history and a lot of pride that that I think deservingly a lot of Syrians find find beautiful and find um, worthy celebrating. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. and that's almost the history of spirituality in a lot of ways. It like is the progress, yeah. right? That's pretty yeah. cool. Now, I have no real point of reference here. I have been to a few places in the Arab world, but I, I am curious. Um, you know, the Arab Spring didn't just come up from from out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Was there always political tension, and was there a feeling that? You were under a dictatorship in terms of maybe watching what you said in public or sneaking sneaking uh, Western contraband. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, funny you should ask. <laughs> um, the uh, the regime in Syria has been the same regime uh, running by the father, the the, the Assad father Hafez, mm-hmm. uh, and then by his son around uh, 15 years ago, uh, after the the death of Hafez al-Assad. And this regime has been quite controlling of of uh, Syria, um, but that didn't uh, reflect the true identity of Syrians. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early 50s and 60s, Syrians were uh, thriving towards democracy. We had multiple uh, political parties. We had elections. Oh, okay. um, and it was uh, a very... Um, strong society on the political side. A lot of people just wanted to talk about those things and they formed multiple parties. Um, Actually, there's a running joke that because we had so many parties and we had so many coups and we had so many people (laughs) wanting to be presidents, the president today wouldn't know if he would wake up tomorrow and be a president (laughs) still. (laughs) Um, So so we had that democracy for the longest time and and my my grandfather's... um, were were born into that, and then the the Syrian regime, the current Syrian regime, came along with a military coup mm-hmm. that uh, they called a corrective movement for the Syrian people. But it's in reality, it's a military coup. Yeah. Um. And and then they created their own um, um, police forces and what we call mukhabarat, which means uh, intelligence. But they're not very intelligent. Um, <laughs> Uh, who would monitor people and their conversations and would monitor um, how how we are reacting because it's the way that this regime managed to stay in power for the longest time. Right, okay, interesting. So it sounds like there was a lot of tumultuousness in the political culture and then there was this military coup and then you sort of had this one regime stay throughout, right? Yes, okay. that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And um, you have to you have to give credit, I guess, to the regime for managing to stay in power for for this long. Um, it wasn't an easy um, uh, way, it wasn't an easy journey for them, I guess, to stay in the power this long because mm-hmm. they uh, they have managed to give this this smart political move of um, turning Syria into a powerful powerful player in the in the in the region, uh, building connections with uh, Russia building conflict with Israel, building conflict with the U.S., and mm-hmm. all of that helped them to stay while also selling this uh, ready-made nationalistic uh, narrative to the locals of being the people who are protecting Syria from outsides, uh, outside right. uh, influences. Mm-hmm. So it was a very smart political move. Um, of course, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, there's a lot of difficult and challenging um, history with with that comes with the bloodshed that they had and comes with silencing a lot of 
the activists and the the uh, civil society um, um, social warriors really mm-hmm. and turning that community that was so uh, democratic in its nature mm-hmm. uh, into community that is more accepting of a dictatorship right okay hmm, interesting well I think it's nice to contrast those two things like your first answer was was talking about Syria and the history and the unity and then contrasting it with this political culture mm-hmm. um, that developed uh, after the coup. So to be clear, we are talking about a region in the world where homosexuality is punishable by law, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what was it like to be gay in Syria or 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 for other people in that community to be lesbian, bi, or tr- trans or queer? Uh, was the community hidden within the fabric of Syrian society? And And what I mean by that is you know, was it something that everyone knew existed but kind of ignored? Or was it not only persecuted by the state in law, but then also persecuted by society as a whole? Because there is a difference between... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, before I answer this question, I sure. have to point out that I'm just speaking about my own experience. Sure. I can't speak on, on behalf of the, the the whole gay community, let alone speak on the behalf of the lesbian and the, Fair enough. the trans yeah. folks. Um through my own experience, it was a very hidden uh, community, um, socially speaking, uh, as well as by law. Uh, homosexuality was punishable, was uh, rejected. We had honor killings, for example. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yes, wow. in case in case somebody um, like uh, like if a father found out that their son is his son is uh, is gay, mm-hmm. um, it's completely within the, the 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 right of the father to to murder the son and then. Mm-hmm. Uh, would, they would go to the police and be like, we murdered the son because he's gay. And the police would be like, okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Wow. Um, so huh. socially speaking, uh, and and from a uh, logistical point of view, homosexuality had to be uh, hidden. And, um, and it wasn't even strong enough to actually be out in the open for people to see. So mm-hmm. it wasn't something that people discuss. People don't actually recognize that uh, sexual minorities exist to begin with. Right. Um, so it's very much like a taboo, like no one talks about it. Yeah, it's yeah. it's never mentioned. Nobody mentions it, um, except for me all the time. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, a, it was a social taboo. It was something that you wouldn't imagine even existed. Mm-hmm. So um, I came out to my family when I was 17 and, and I was faced with shock, but also I was faced with uh, being uh, ostracized and being kicked out of the house yeah. because I turned into the villain overnight, basically. Yeah. And I guess that's my next question. In, in that environment, um, even before you came out to your family, what was it like realizing that you were gay? That's actually that's that's a question that a lot of people ask me, and I find it funny. I grew up knowing that I was gay all okay. along. It's it's not something it wasn't like that a discovery. I, yeah. No, I didn't like. I clearly walk- played my straight card there. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> I don't know when I realized I was straight, but exactly, yeah, yeah right. Um, yeah, and like I I did hear in in churches, we in sorry in mosques, we heard uh, we heard the story of the the. Loot, we call them the the the, the people of, of Lot, yeah. yeah, and uh, those people are accused in Islam of homosexuality and were punished by God uh, by by uh, lifting them up, lifting the whole village up, and then like squish it down on the on the on the on earth again. Mm-hmm. So we we know about this narrative, but 
But honestly, what happens is that I just fell in love. I just was 14 and I fancied the 17-year-old in my school and I just fell in love and it was the most beautiful, the most amazing feeling in the world and I just wanted mm-hmm. to celebrate it. And I I struggled with it, God knows, for like a good six months, for, for a while. I struggled with it, feeling like um, this is the weirdest thing. Why is this happening? Right. But just the idea that I am experiencing those beautiful feelings they felt positive they felt amazing they yeah. felt loving really they felt like they they connected so much with my inner soul that i didn't want to judge them and i think that's that's that has been my my journey all 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 through my life i i have faced so much dif- so many different um challenges and conflicts with friends with people that i know with jobs mm-hmm. uh, because i came out as gay and Every time it just felt like, actually, you're wrong. It's not me that I'm wrong. I was born this way, to quote Lady Gaga. <laughs> That's a great quote. <laughs> I it's guess. a great song. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if if I didn't think it's a great song, they will take away my gay ID. Oh, so. is that right? <laughs> it's one of the requirements when yes, you fill out yes. the form? You, yeah. you fill the form. <laughs> you have to recruit. So, <laughs> I, I guess what's, again, like I, I can't speak... T- to anything in sort of that experience but it just seems like if you live in a society that persecutes something mm-hmm. and you come to this awakening that you are that thing mm-hmm. or or you don't even have the awakening but you just have been you know that thing guilt shame like there's like you said you had struggles with it like it just seems like there it would be so hard to because and you can't even talk about it with anyone right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. well um it's funny because i talked about it with with I was at the time I identified as a Muslim. Okay. I don't anymore. I I stopped that. Uh, I stopped the insanity long ago. Uh, no. <laughs> there are some good Muslims too. They are. No, I, I agree. Um, this is this is maybe a, more good a than bad. Actually, joke, actually, I should say. Um, no, actually, I personally I I appreciate Islam as a as a spiritual guidance for sure. a lot of people. I think that it's beautiful in the way that it's presented. I just think that there are people out there who take Islam as a vehicle for their own malicious ways. But I don't think yeah. that Islam itself is the problem. Mm-hmm. But again, like at the time when I was when I was much younger, I just had conversations with God, with Allah, and mm. I was just like, I don't know why you made me this way. I don't know what the answer here. I I felt like I needed guidance and I wasn't hearing back. Mm-hmm. I I even had like again i was 14 i was a child so i would i would like walk in the street and count my steps of and if the number of steps from my school to my to my home would be an even number that means that god appreciates me the way i i am and okay, it's like yeah. an odd number that means that no god is giving me uh, like a different direction that i need to take and like the weirdest things that you that a 14 year old would come up with to try to see hidden messages about about a conversation with an with an entity that they don't even know if that exists, mm-hmm. and yeah, at some point I felt like there is no. I'm not hearing back. I, I I'm left on red, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. So I just wanted. I I just felt positive about my emotions, and I was like, I need to stop feeling guilty about this. I need to stop feeling shameful about this. It's 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 my reality. I'll keep it to myself. I don't need to discuss it with the word. Yeah. But it is my own little, my own little narrative, say. Yeah, and I think that's just a a great lesson across the board for anything. You know, mm-hmm. um, pursuing the things you want to pursue and and not worrying about what other people are are going to think or how you're going to be judged. 
much different scenario <laughs> in yours, obviously, but I'm just saying I think it has some applicability elsewhere yeah. as well. Yeah. Now, um, in your adult, in your early adulthood, you left home and you pursued a career in journalism. I did. That took you around the Arab world. Mm-hmm. And I think what a lot of people fail to realize when they look at the Arab world is that it's not monolithic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only connection really is the language, and I guess like predominantly the religion as well, but there certainly are pockets of different Christian denominations, especially in a place like Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember this conversation that I had with an Iraqi friend, and again, it, it shows my ignorance, uh, but he was, yeah, I was very confused because he was adamant that he wasn't an Arab. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. he constantly said, I'm, no, no, I'm Sumerian. Mm-hmm. And he would say like, no, no, I speak Arabic, mm-hmm. but I'm not an Arab, I, I'm a Sumerian. So, it, you know, what, even though I, I do some business in the Middle East as well, but that's sort of what dawned upon me is like, these are very different, diverse cultures, even within mm-hmm. a country. Mm-hmm. Um, so in your travels after, uh, in the Arab world, um, since you had an exposure to a, a multitude of different countries, were there places that you felt were distinctly more liberal mm-hmm. and perhaps conveyed more hope for progressive values in the future? Mm-hmm. Um I actually agree with your Iraqi friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I identify as a Syrian, actually. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's a local race, tribe. Uh, that uh, Actually, it was funny. I was in the Louvre a couple of, uh, couple of months ago. I traveled with my partner to the Louvre, okay. uh, to, to Paris, and we saw some Assyrian yes. uh, statues. Yeah, yeah. I sent you the photo. I took a photo with the, with the statue, and my boyfriend was like um you have the same nose and you have the same <laughs> eyes and like i'm like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um so so and that's one thing the other thing is i also agree with you that the arab word is completely different even the language we don't share arabic as 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 a language is like speaking latin oh okay. and then every every little region has their own dialect so oh, a syrian okay. and an egyptian would be speaking two different languages they would be able to understand each other because we are living right next to each other and the mm-hmm. language derives from the original arabic but we do speak two different languages oh interesting okay yeah um we all write in 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 we call it fusha arabic the 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 Latin Arabic, say, mm-hmm. the original Arabic. Um, we all write in that, all newspapers are written in that, all books, uh, and we all read it and, and, and understand it, but we all have our own different dialect. Yeah. And also, speaking of how Islam is inter- uh, interpreted, um, I would be practicing Islam in Syria and people would be practicing Islam in Egypt and they have completely different ways of practicing Islam. Yeah. It's it's quite interesting to actually see those little differences in the Arab world. Um I think we forget how much religion is cultural. And you see is. this with Catholicism, right? The Catholicism in Latin America is much different than than it is in the United States than it is in Europe. So exactly. it's the same thing with Islam. Yeah, yeah. You would see that if you looked at uh, pictures of uh, Jesus, for example, from across the world. Yes. You would have black Jesus yeah, and you would yeah. have like a Latin-looking Jesus. It's it's really interesting to actually see the, the, the ways we worship our deities in a way that reflect our culture, really, and reflects our own values as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, to go back to your question, when I lived in Egypt in the early 2000s, um, it was a liberal place. It was heading toward being a liberal place. Okay. I felt more open to to come out as a as a queer person. I had a, the community out there was was outspoken, was was uh, 
uh, present. I had lots of queer friends. Mm-hmm. Again, speaking from my own experience, sure. uh, the uh, in the later years, of specifically after the uh, Arab Spring, um, I believe that queer folks in Egypt went back to the closet. Mm-hmm. They were faced with a bigger crackdown. There was a lot more uh, arrests for queer folks that uh, is reported heavily in the media anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, Lebanon continues to be on the uh, on the rise in uh, human rights and focusing on sexual minorities and gender minorities. It's the little haven of the uh, Arab world. Mm-hmm. Turkey was heading in the direction of uh, supporting and legalizing, specifically when, politically speaking, they wanted to join the UN, uh, the, the, the EU, yes. the EU, sorry, yeah. and. Um, and they were trying to change their own society towards that. And then the EU were like, no, we don't want you there. So the society started to return to oh, okay. um, to their conservative views. Like in 2011, I participated in a Pride Parade in Turkey, in Istanbul. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so... Probably the only Pride Parade in the Arab world, I would imagine? At the moment, it's the only Pride Parade in the Arab world. It's still ongoing. They okay. just had their Pride Parade two weeks ago in Istanbul. Okay, great. Still, no. <laughs> no? Not great? It is great that okay. they have the Pride Parade, but it's it's uh, heavily uh, policed. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. They get arrested. They they You can't arrest 20,000, 30,000 people, but yeah. the main activists who are under the eyes of the government in the Turkish government get arrested every single year and then they spend a couple of months in prison and then they're released and then they go back to planning the next Pride Parade. Right, so, yeah. Wow. So it is still a protest over there. Yeah. Um, and I'm I I'm proud of it, I guess. it's it's um It's a beautiful experience and it shows you that while we are here celebrating pride with like endless parties and, mm-hmm. and having our own uh little discussions about how to um who to include in pride and who doesn't who doesn't get a say in what pride is i'm mm-hmm. like there are places around the world where they can't even celebrate pride or even if they did they get arrested for it right. so so let's have a bigger conversation for a second there um so yeah all of that tells you how Uh, society and their way of navigating homosexuality uh, changes with the political uh, influence as well as with the with the social influence of uh, each society and what mm-hmm. the current government is trying to to do. We are the scapegoat of any political regime, any political regime that wants to stay in power and wants to, in the Arab world specifically, uh, wants to stay in power and wants to. Um, villainize uh, a certain uh, group and they want the people to see them doing good mm-hmm. uh, quote unquote I just they did uh, air quotes so if the the, the 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 regime wants to be seen as doing good they usually arrest the homosexuals yeah and that's society, and that's yeah. like a tried and true political tactic as you sort of target the already marginalized whether it's immigrants or uh, minorities of color like that that is something that is used Throughout history, throughout the globe. Yeah, right? cough, trumped, cough. <laughs> <laughs> you said it, I didn't. I did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you traveled throughout the Arab world. Uh, you, you were working as a journalist. And then in 2011, you returned to Syria. So mm. what brought you back? Well, um, in in Egypt, I was reporting on the uh, civil unrest in Egypt. I was mm-hmm. reporting on uh, the quote-unquote uh, uh, Arab Spring And then it started to happen in uh, Syria, and I wanted to be a part of that. So mm. I just packed my bags and I head across the uh, the the Red Sea to Syria. And um, 
I didn't have an assignment. I didn't work for any. I was freelancing at the time. Oh, I didn't I see, work okay. for anybody. I just literally just wanted to be part of that, um, that uh, that movement. It yeah. felt like it's going in the right direction. You have to understand, in 2011, when the Arab Spring happened, it was extremely hopeful, and everybody was like, "Oh, it's the best thing ever happened in the." In the Middle East? Oh, of course. I mean, uh, Tunisia overthrows Ben Ali. Egypt yeah. has overthrown Mubarak. Libya begins the process to overthrow Gaddafi. Yemen begins the, the process to overthrow Saleh. Mm-hmm. And Syria begins this uprising as well, which unknowingly would transform into, into this full-blown civil war mm-hmm. that continues to persist today. Mm-hmm. And I guess what's crazy about it is it's like th- it's this maze of different belligerent groups that are funded by many different foreign powers and mm-hmm. are all fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And the more I try to like learn about the civil war in Syria, it's really complicated because it's not like one group against one group. Mm-hmm. It, there's all these different weird alliances and, and uh, enemies. And uh, it just seems like it's so chaotic. So when you returned, mm-hmm. what was the feeling like? Uh, because obviously like things had changed and, and was there confusion or, or as you say, like was there more hope that, okay, we're going to, Everyone has a single vision, maybe, when in mm. 2011 when you returned. Mm-hmm. No, um, when I returned in 2011, I was back in Syria in February 2011. It was a clear people, uh, like just a, the people, right? The the civilians going out protesting, not even for the the outs uh, of Bashar al-Assad, for a change in the way the regime is run. Oh, okay. Uh, at the time, Syria has been going through um, an eight years uh, financial crisis. Prices were going off uh, through the roof. Uh, mm-hmm. People were struggling quite a lot. There was a lot of crackdown, a lot of corruption within the, within the, the, uh, the Syrian government. And at the time, at the very beginning, in the very first month, people were just asking for um, f- um, a change in the government that would help those crises come to um to an end right okay. um i i managed to the minute that i arrived i managed to insert myself into those group of civil uh activists social justice warriors people that i actually uh quite comfortably uh came out to as a queer person mm-hmm. and i i we were just talking about bringing democracy to syria uh bringing uh social change that will uh return to the actual values of the civilized uh, country that we used to be in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like a lot of optimism, a lot of hope. There was a lot of opti- optimism. We, every every Friday we expected the regime to uh, relent and be like, okay, we'll do what you, you're asking. There was It was only protesting. There was nobody carrying weapons. Mm-hmm. And then the regime started shooting at protesters. Right. And that's when naturally protesters started to shoot back yeah you know what i mean when did when did the the violence really start the violence started in march when in okay. a little uh town uh to the south of damascus i think um they had a group of 13 year olds uh, youngsters really who just left school and decided to write uh slogans against the regime on the wall of their school mm. which to be honest, those are 13-year-olds who, who their parents are watching TV yeah. and they just wrote those stuff. And then the the regime arrested the 13-year-olds and then they were tortured. Wow. 
and that really started to to turn people against the regime quite a lot like it started as like let's just fix things yeah and then when when that incident happened um a lot of the um a lot of the protesters were like no we want the regime gone if this is how you're responding to this we want the regime gone this wow. is this is brutal um so yeah this is this is how we felt at the beginning i i there's no way for me to actually um describe to you what is happening at the moment in the civil war it's mm-hmm. it's so complicated and and it would require it require books really to no, to, yeah. to to describe what i know for a fact is that it started as a revolution it started as a civil movement towards democracy that turned into a revolution that turned then into um this uh, syrian regime army against a free army and then the free army became their own warlords who right. are each being uh, reporting back to their own uh, to whomever is paying them for their weapons and and the regime it's 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 it became way too complicated from that so there must have obviously been a shift from this hope and optimism towards who knows when this thing will end were you there during that time or, or had you already left uh... um no i i left syria in 2012 in july 2012 okay uh and, I and that was say... my next question is uh, you know how are you uprooted so you can <laughs> you can answer both of those together sure um it's it's not the most beautiful experiences of leaving your homeland i didn't want to leave syria um at the beginning of of uh, my arrival completely unintentional i can't claim that i actually built that intentionally but i started to invite friends who identify within the queer community both mm-hmm. uh, gay and lesbian to my apartment i had a two bedroom apartment where people would hang out and then i re- started to realize that i have the privilege of living outside of syria for so long and in communities where um in lebanon in egypt where homosexuality has been uh way more understood and and uh where i had access to material uh to to books and movies that would explain who i am mm. so while my community back in Syria didn't have any of those experiences so i started to introduce those things to 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 my to my people really to my to the queer community in damascus oh okay um like community building in your apartment in a in a way yeah. <laughs> um it it turned into this underground lgbtq center okay. if you thought about it like we had like 150 people who knew about the place then uh, after How like many people would you have at one time in the apartment? Oh my god, like forty. Really? Like I would okay. arrive back from like whatever work that I was working. I I did a lot of odd jobs. And yeah. I would arrive back to home and I gave the key out to like ten people. Yeah. And then those two, ten people gave the key out to like twenty people. <laughs> so I would arrive back and there are like forty people in my apartment, and I had to like put a sign on my bedroom like. Anywhere but my bedroom, folks. Okay. Like, come on. You set seriously. boundaries. That's good. That's yeah. that's the only boundary. Yeah. <laughs> but they ate my food. They drank my wine. They ate my my um like they they really brought havoc. The good kind of havoc. Really. <laughs> the fun kind. Yeah. <laughs> the fun kind to my to my apartment every single day. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, after a while, no secret stays a secret for long. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up being arrested for for that. Uh, for my role in building that community i guess um did they did they come to your apartment no actually i was um i had published a couple of books in arabic before and okay. um university of columbia the the uh the the us university wanted to translate my one of my books to english oh okay cool um the project never came to fruition but i was invited to to meet some representatives from the university of columbia in uh jordan 
So on my way there, I ended up being arrested at the airport because they had oh. my name on the borders that I shouldn't leave the country. Um, I ended up in prison for around six weeks, and then my friends, my 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 people. And, uh, and sorry, sorry to interrupt. What were you arrested for? And I was never told. You were never that no, whole no. time. The six weeks. No, I was never told. No, they they never asked me any questions. I was just arrested, and then had difficulties. <laughs> yeah, no, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I don't like to go into the details no. That's of, that's yeah. fine. I was just curious if they had, if they'd given you a charge at that point. No, but, no, no, no. It's it's not the way the regime works. I yeah, guess. fair enough. Um, so your friend, my friends, uh, managed to uh, talk to higher ups and to bribe their way through the system, and they managed to get me out of uh, of prison. Uh, but the the agreement is that I would technically like. I'm not physically there, but I'm still apparently up until now in a Syrian prison. Oh, in their system. In their system yeah, as okay. a prisoner. And they wanted me out of the country. They're like, the only way that we'll release him is if he left the country. So in mm. 12, 2012, I ended up leaving uh, Syria for the last time in my life to Lebanon. Okay. Wow. Um, and obviously there's this gap in from 2012 to 2014 to when you arrived here. And, yeah. and I'm curious, you know, what was the process of declaring refugee status and arriving in Canada? Because I think a lot of people think, like, it's you fill out a form and then <laughs> you, you get you get a bunch of pamphlets and you get to pick. But I don't. But clearly two years was, was spent doing something or, or being yeah. in the process. Um, well, at the time when I arrived to Lebanon, I didn't have any plans. I just literally arrived with literally nothing with the clothes on my on my body like my friend C um, who is actually now in Vancouver I actually brought him to Vancouver oh, okay. like right. a couple of years ago um, he's my best friend um, he basically picked me up in, in Beirut and bought me clothes <laughs> wow um, so um, yeah I, I arrived there I posted on Twitter that I'm looking for a job in Beirut uh, somebody at the Washington Post who I, I knew before uh, was uh, in Beirut and she's like I need a translator and a reporter would you like to join mm. and I ended up working for the Washington Post and I thought that that's it that's 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 about it mm-hmm. um, and then a group of Canadians and I never actually identified as a refugee so just okay. to, uh, I I do now I'm a I'm a former refugee I was a refugee for two years in Lebanon. In the systems, when you come here to Canada, you stop being a refugee, you become a newcomer. So at the moment, I'm a a newcomer to Canada until I get my Canadian citizenship, which is in like six months from now. Okay. Um, Thank you. Pretty close. That's coming up. Yeah, I'm ready. Yes. (laughs) Thank you to the Canadian government. (laughs) Yes. I'm looking forward to the day. yeah, so um, so I arrived to 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 Lebanon, mm-hmm. and then a group of Canadian folks uh, heard about my story, uh, and they came together and they're like, "We would like to sponsor you to come to to Canada." Cool. Um, okay. I'm like, "That's that's awesome." Uh, at the same time, the UNHCR started to process my application for refuge for refugee. Mm-hmm. Um, Politically speaking, um, I am technically, I was technically a refugee, but politically speaking, they wouldn't call us in Lebanon as refugees. We were called uh, displayed citizens. Right, uh, yeah. Because they didn't want to give us a refugee status in Lebanon, which would allow us to start working in Lebanon. So oh, I was okay. working under the table in Lebanon, basically. Yeah, um, and that's one of the things. I mean, I mean, um, I said in the introduction here that, that Lebanon takes 
quite a fair share, and not even a fair share, more than it can really afford. And it's, uh, these these uh, refugee uh, international programs are quite underfunded, mm-hmm. and chronically underfunded to to help these other countries that are bearing more than their share of... Uh, it's really interesting, to be honest, because if you thought about it, Lebanon has uh, documented 2 million Syrians in the past five years. Right. And that means that there are at least 3 million Syrians, um, like a million people who are not even documented in Lebanon. Wow. Um, and Lebanon's population is 3 million. Yeah. <laughs> so, and this, and Lebanon is it's a tiny very small. Little, yeah. It's a tiny little country. You can fit, I think, uh, four or five Lebanons on Vancouver Island. Really? Okay. It's the tiniest little country. So, yeah. it's completely, from their point of view, to be honest, it's completely fair to see how they have xenophobic uh, um, prejudice against refugees because the country doesn't have a lot of resources and doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of ability to actually welcome all those refugees. Right. And of course, you're not going to blame uh, the big players, the, the, the Syrian regime or the, the Lebanese regime that is equally corrupted. You're going to blame the person who's in, in your face, the refugee who is literally there, who is accepting a job, half of your salary, because the person who is hiring would take a Syrian with the same qualifications as a, as a Lebanese and then pay them literally have the money right right yeah interesting and that creates all of this um inner conflict and xenophobia in in um in lebanon um i spent two years in lebanon we waited for the application to be processed Mm -hmm. it's 151 pages of an application to be formed filled other than the unhcr uh application which is also it takes literally weeks of visits over and over and over to the most humiliating place that you can imagine where lines are just like formed under the sun and you stand there for 12, 14 hours just waiting for your turn and then your turn is to give you a number so the next day you would come and wait in a different line. It took me weeks to just register and all I did in those weeks is stand under the sun and wait. Wow. It it literally... And no one's reading your application at this point. You're just standing in line. And by the time that I actually, my application got read, uh, the person who was working at the UNHCR at the moment who interviewed me Mm -hmm. was this local uh, staffer who, when I told her that I'm gay, because again, I I need to declare that for my my application, uh, she actually lectured me for a good 20 minutes about how homosexuality is a sin. Really? And I flipped her the finger and then we ended up having a conversation. Like, it was was a big deal. (laughs) Somehow you made it through this process, though, in spite of this this little tiff. I did. I Because the UNHCR paper is just a paper, like, I just needed to present it to the Canadian government. The Canadian government didn't, like, wanted me because I'm queer. Um, Right. Statistically speaking, actually, queer people are the most easily to integrate into any any new uh, Western society. Okay. So um, you will find that uh, there's a lot of uh, support that goes. Thankfully, knock on wood, it might it, it will last. Uh, there's a lot of support for queer refugees to come to Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. interesting. So, so and that this whole process took about two years then yes. to get here. Yeah. Now you've said yourself in in past interviews that you know people hear that and they think. That's the happy ending. That's <laughs> it. You've uh, you've escaped, you know, the horrors of what was happening in in Syria. Mm-hmm. But I think, just rationally, if you think about it, like we have to be cognizant of the idea that you're now in a really foreign land, mm-hmm. and you're not a tourist. You have to make a life here. Mm-hmm. And the second thing we have to think about is, 
you're processing a lot of trauma. I mean, you were uprooted, and this was not a migration of choice. This was very much a migration for survival. Mm -hmm. And people that you still care about are in Syria as well. Mm -hmm. So was it a mix of emotions when you arrived and settled in your first few months? How did you feel, and and how did you cope with all this tumultuous change and, and mm -hmm. everything that was going on? I wouldn't say it's a mix of emotion. It was one simple emotion. I was depressed as hell. Really? I yeah. wanted to swear, to be honest. Yeah. Um, the, the challenge was that a lot of folks, when I arrived here to Canada, really thought that it's the end of a happy movie. Mm -hmm. I, I arrive at the at the airport and somebody's making out with somebody for no apparent reason <laughs> and credit is rolling. or whatever. I, I, It's the weirdest thing. Um, and people don't recognize how difficult it is to integrate into a community mm -hmm. that is so completely different from everything you've experienced in all of your life. Yeah. And it's it's... And different is not bad. I'm not saying that Syria is bad for being different or Canada is bad for being different than Syria. It's just different and it's just something that I'm not used to. Absolutely, you, yeah. You literally took me away. I was taken away, not you, like I was taken away from uh, a community that I know and understand where I have my support network, my friends, my spiritual family, um, my my normalities, my routine, uh, my... I don't know, like the supermarket where I buy my cigarettes. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's the place that I know everything about. And then you bring me to the other side of the uh, other side of the world to a completely different culture, a completely different weather. Uh, my allergies were kicking in. My, I'm serious. Like <laughs> yeah. I have like your body isn't used to it. I mean, I mean, we yeah. know what this is. We call it culture shock. There, that is. term has existed for a long time, but and I, was I think we forget it in this in this yeah. scenario. And I was dealing at the time with post-traumatic stress disorder. I come out and and like say it all the time. I I I proudly have a post-traumatic stress disorder. If I didn't have post-traumatic stress disorder, I would be a psycho because <laughs> the things that I went through requires the brain to function through them. Yeah. Um. So I was dealing with a lot of that, and I was dealing also with with um, my own expectations. So my last job, for example, before I came here to Canada, was working for the Washington Post. And then I literally applied to every newspaper and media outlet here in Canada, and I never heard back. Yeah. And Jeez. you would think that somebody like me with the fact that I speak the language fluently, the fact that I have um, 10 years of experience in journalism in the Middle East, that I would get a job in, in a heartbeat. It took me nine months to get a job. Um, wow. It took me longer than that to actually start to feel comfortable enough to actually start having friendships. Mm -hmm. It's not about just meeting somebody and suddenly you're friends. It's about you being ready to actually being friends with, with a with another human being that you don't share any common experiences with before. Yeah. Um, I actually, it's it's funny. I, I say this quite a lot. To explain culture shock, the most trivial of things, in Canada, the first question that new people ask each other is, uh, how is the weather? Or yeah. how do you feel about the weather? Um, it's something around the weather. And it's the way to, to you know, introduce Spoiler yourself. Alert. It's probably raining. It is raining, actually. <laughs> it was raining. Come on, July. Come on. Um, but like back in Syria, when you're talking about the weather, 
you're basically, it's a social cue to tell the other person, I don't want to have this conversation. Oh. I'm done with this conversation. So for a good year, I go out, I meet people, they talk to me about the weather, and then I come back home and I'm like, nobody likes me in this city. <laughs> oh, man. And all these people are coming up to you telling you they don't want to talk to you. <laughs> exactly. So and like, it's rough. not their yeah. fault. Yeah. It's not my fault. No, no. That is literally the explanation of cultural shock on the most trivial of uh, trivial of yeah, things. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And then double that by like 100 million times because yeah. literally everything is different. The way that you communicate is different. Sure. And I'm I think that I I I have to put that on the both the refugees and the newcomers and the 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 locals. The the newcomers it is it's a moment that you have to look at it with a curious eye. You mm-hmm. have to start to learn the the, 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 the the experiences of the locals. You have to start to understand this uh, this society that you come through, you're coming to, sorry, and you have to learn how to integrate into it. Mm-hmm. So that's something that you have to do. And it is part of your integration. It, people here are different than people that you're used to. It's as simple as that. And you have to learn their ways. Right. And also the, new, the, 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 the locals have to recognize that the newcomers when they walk into their house and they don't they don't know that they should take their shoes off it's just because their culture they don't take their shoes right. off when they walk into their house so be gentle and be welcoming and just mention it or be be smart about the way you mention it mm-hmm. don't like shame them for for doing something that they completely have no background around yeah yeah well, that's good advice um w- one thing i want to ask you about um and you don't have to go into details just mm-hmm. curious um, you have you did mention having a, a counselor mm-hmm. as well. So so did you have one right away when you came to Vancouver? No, it no. took a while. <laughs> my counselor was marijuana. I smoked so much marijuana, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't advise to be honest. Self medicating no, for yeah. for the first year while you're dealing with with uh, culture shock and post traumatic disorder, yeah. disorder it doesn't help at all. Um, I was actually I'm quite thankful for a person, and I always love to mention her name. Her name is Dara Parker. Dara Parker mm-hmm. was the executive director of the organization uh, called Community, where I found my first job. Okay. And Dara Parker could tell from the first weeks that I started my job that I was going through um, a difficult mental space. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who sat me down in her office and was so smart and so welcoming and so understanding of my intersectionality. And she helped me through a lot of my first culture cultural challenges and then she put me in touch with uh with professionals who continue to help me okay so i'm i'm and that's exactly what um the responsibility really of a lot of people who are working with refugees it is Mm -hmm. it is your responsibility to recognize that they're not just going to come here and suddenly all of the stress of the past is going to stay in syria this is something that that roots itself in your soul right and it is your responsibility not to shame them for it, not to tell them just be happy you're in Canada or just be grateful you're here. Mm-hmm. Um, those are serious mental health challenges that are extremely fixable. Yeah. Like within within six months after I started seeing, seeing my, counsel, my counselor, my, my life turned around 180%. It just made my life... And my experience is a much better, a pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. And like... Personally, I don't believe in in, in using chemicals um, in in dealing with mental health uh, disorders. And that person, my counselor, respected that completely. And and just having those conversations and just understanding your own emotions Mm -hmm. really help you 
get a grip at at what is going on with you were were you writing at this time as well um was i writing i was doing a lot of public speaking okay the book the clothesline swing was done i would say the first six months i arrived here oh okay wow i wrote it no i wrote it for two years in before lebanon that, yeah. before, before that and my last like three or four chapters were written here in canada for wow. in the first six months um and that's why they're very heavy on the magic realism i guess right um it's um and then and then i was doing a lot of public speaking i was doing um uh, speeches everywhere talking about my own experiences mm-hmm. was this part of your work with community um not really actually no, okay. um my my work with community i was i was hired to community um while i also was uh invited to be one of the uh, the the keynote speakers for an event that they hold called the um ida hot uh, breakfast Okay. So and it was like this uh 500 people in the room I I spoke for a good 30 minutes um and it it went it went quite well okay cool. so but that was the only thing that I did as a speech with community I did a lot of um I did a TEDx talk at mm-hmm. SFU I did I did um I don't know Brain City Chronicles I did multiple speeches about refugees excuse me I did multiple spe- speeches about refugees and newcomers um but mainly i always as i started this conversation i always state that this is just my own personal experience and i for I, sure yeah. yeah well i well i think what's interesting is that um johan hari has this book called lost connections and it's mm-hmm. about anxiety and depression mm-hmm. and the book basically outlines two main sources for depression one is trauma and the second is a feeling of meaninglessness especially in one's work mm-hmm. um but you arrive here and you know maybe not right away but you begin processing your your trauma yes um and even writing there is something about processing this like nebulous mess of emotions and feelings and chunking it down into logical paragraphs and fine tuning the sentences especially in a creative and expressive way that can be quite therapeutic and there's a lot of um therapies that involve writing things out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and people for whatever reason end up feeling much better when they when they do this as a as a regular practice um and at the same time you know you begin to consume yourself in this meaning for work not only as a speaker but also working for a community as well so it seems like consciously or unconsciously you you went through the the correct way i mean maybe you you had some uh uh gentle hands some gentle hands as well yes. um um but certainly you went through the the right steps to to integrate quite quickly. I mean it it has only been 4 years, which is pretty impressive. Um I think I think at the end of the day, I I seek community, I seek spiritual families and and that's what led me through to this work. Mm-hmm. I felt that I wasn't uh represented myself like I didn't find people who are like me. Yeah. Uh in the community. Uh that 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 is my host community now, my home community. and i started to seek those folks people that that can actually that i can actually talk to and i i like joke to and they they would understand the joke right away mm-hmm. um and at the same time i felt that meaningful work is about being part of something bigger a movement of some sort right. and and i thought to myself honestly i thought to myself when i was maybe like 6 month or 8 month after i arrived here is that At the end of the day I just went some uh, through something that is extremely unique that mm-hmm. is um not a lot of people can actually claim to be 
able to go through this same process and actually survive it and come on the other side yeah. and be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about myself and thinking about my ability to actually bring those experiences to the light meant something to me, but it would have it it means more much more when i'm using it for a good cause of course you yeah. see what i mean of course so the idea that that i kept telling myself is that i can i can people are always going to be curious about the way i look and who i am and where i came from and the the my accent and the mm-hmm. the uh, the history of syria and the history of me as a refugee mm-hmm. and i can tell you those stories and you can feel bad about it or feel pity or feel empathy or feel sympathy or whatever you want to feel but at the end of the day i didn't change anything right i just told you a story yeah. and you're going to forget it tomorrow so what i wanted to do is to tell you those stories but then get something out of the conversation of course yeah you see what i mean um so and that's and i think that's yeah. the part of the story that i admire the most about you i mean you put in the work to to bring those experiences to light and to make a difference and you know you weren't like you said like you've just sort of said you know you were trying to do something bigger than just yourself or mm-hmm. or telling your own story and and you know I think that's incredible. I admire you for it. Thank you. And, and I think everyone can learn from, from that example. Really, really that. cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to get into activism just a little bit. Okay. We sort of touched about this in, in terms of Turkey and the Pride rally there. Um, I think, as you probably rightly said, for a younger generation here, you know, we see Pride as this fun party and celebration. And I think it's great. You know, it's good to have those spaces where you're mm-hmm. having a good time with your friends. But a lot of people forget, or maybe they never even learned, that Pride marches are historically rooted in activism and going as far back as the Stonewall riots in 1969 in uh, New York. Mm-hmm. Clearly, I think we've come a long way for LGBTQ rights here in the West. Um, but as an outside observer, I almost feel like there's been a resurgence in the activism for Pride parades and rallies. Um, we see Black Lives Matter has used a framework of inter- intersectionality to highlight institutional racism mm-hmm. that affects LGBTQ black people. Trans rights have come to the forefront of the public consciousness. Um, there was this Supreme Court ruling about the the gay wedding cake and the whole debate over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, global LGBTQ issues, including uh, the support of LGBTQ refugees in different countries, has also begun to spark a little more activism. And, and that's just me from the outside um, what, and what I can observe. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that there's a resurgence in, in activism in the community? Um and and what is the movement like here? Is it is it an activist community or is it still? Hmm. Well, um, I don't think it's a resurgence as much as a continuous. Okay. Because we wouldn't be right now celebrating pride parades and celebrating all of those achievements if if our 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 elders within the queer community didn't do the hard work, didn't deal with. Uh, so many challenges, the, the AIDS crisis, the, um, it started with the Stonewall riots and then the AIDS crisis and then mm-hmm. the fight for marriage equality. We wouldn't be uh, where we are today. The youngsters that we mentioned a minute ago who are going to parties and having the rightful fun mm-hmm. um, wouldn't be able to do those things if those activism, um, those acts of activism didn't take place all over the, 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 um, the past decade of our queer history right um, that's a good that's a really good point i think yeah makes sense and at the same time it is it is important to actually look at um 
how our communities, because our community is an umbrella community. There mm-hmm. are so many different identities under this umbrella. Yes. So um, understanding how different those identities are and understanding that each and every identity has its own unique people. And right. some of them are party-loving folks. Let them have their fun 100%. I, mm-hmm. I go out to my parties as well. Um, and others are people who are activists, who are also growing up to see their queer identity as part of their, the many identities that they carry, mm-hmm. that they would like to see represented, they would like to see respected, and they'd like to see their rights um, uh, as part of the laws and part of the, the social norms of the societies that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why we're seeing diversity in the different uh, activisms that we were seeing um, um, out there at the moment, mm-hmm. um, and I think I think the more the merrier. To be honest, like bring your identity, tell me who you are, tell me everything about yourself. Let me help you. Let me stand by you. Sure. Uh, and you should stand by me as well. Come, come and let me tell you about being a queer refugee. Uh, who's a person of color with mental health uh, uh, challenges. Let mm-hmm. me tell you all about that. <laughs> uh, so I think that it is completely important to recognize that every queer, queer person deserves to be represented not just as a queer person, mm-hmm. but also with the other identities that they carry. Right. You see what I mean? Interesting. And it is beautiful to see that work happening. It mm-hmm. is beautiful to see the global movement uh, heading towards uh, building uh, a siblinghood mm-hmm. um, across the world between uh, folks who identify under this umbrella of being queer or trans. Um, it's beautiful to see somebody like me, a queer, um, ref- a queer person with a refugee background who's a person of color, and one of my best friends is a two-spirited uh, First Nations uh, person uh, who identify also within the queer community. So mm-hmm. having having those two different live experiences coming in together. They're not just beautiful from a social perspective, but they're freaking inspiring. Yeah, sure. It is amazing to sit down and listen to those beautiful different lived experiences and how how complex and how wonderful and fruitful queer experiences are. Mm-hmm. And just seeing that is is beautiful in its, its own self. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of keyboard warriors out there. We have trolls and keyboard warriors and you can change who is the troll and who's the warrior according to whatever cause that you care yeah. for and whatever your <laughs> own political views every, are. Com- every community has those, I think. Exactly. <laughs> um, and I think that seeing those folks standing there on social media and talking about their experiences in front of cameras on podcasts and, mm-hmm. and on in their day-to-day posts on social media, we are creating content that deserves to be read. We are creating mm-hmm. content that deserves to to become part of the narrative and the daily daily conversations that we have as a society. Mm-hmm. That's that's. That's my opinion on the matter. Yeah, no, cool, <laughs> cool. We uh, we just have a little bit of time left, and and I want to talk about your book okay. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Clothesline Swing. I picked it up this weekend. I'm about a third of the way through. So beautifully written. Uh, I really enjoyed it, or I'm, I am enjoying it, I should say. And you almost have this, like, brilliant gift of... I'm not a literary critic, so this is going to sound <laughs> terrible, but uh, you have this gift of like dancing with the readers because you're, you're weaving through these different ideas and you juxtapose like these moments of tenderness with these like jarring imagery. And it, it's, it's really well done. I, I've been enjoying it so far. But I would like you to describe your book to anyone who hasn't heard of it or hasn't sure. heard of you. 
Um, so it's actually quite difficult to talk about the, the book and tell a plot of the book because sure. it's, it's, um, it's a non-linear story filled with magic realism. Mm-hmm. But let me try my best. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's a story about two uh, gay men. They met in Damascus. Uh, they went through their life as uh, through the civil war in Syria, and then they became refugees in Lebanon, and then they came here to Canada. Mm-hmm. They grew much older here in Canada, and then in their um, in their late age, where the book starts, one of them is about to pass away, while the other is having a lot of feelings about losing the person, the only constant that he has in his life, all of his all, all through his adult life. So that that. That man prolongs the life of his uh, his partner, his dying partner, by telling him story after story about uh, their life together, mm-hmm. um, and and weaving through time where one story might start in their early childhood, and the next story might be happening like two days earlier. Right. Um, and that's like the inverse of One Thousand and uh, it is. One Nights. Basically, it is the right? inverse of yeah. One Thousand and One Nights. Uh, Shahrazad in One Thousand and One Night wanted to prolong her own life by by pleasing the the uh, the Sultan. Yeah. Um, the the storyteller Hakawati, which means literally storyteller in Arabic, mm-hmm. um, is telling his partner those stories in attempt to prolong his partner's life. Mm-hmm. Death is a main character. He is the the the, the corner of magic realism in that character in, yeah. in that book. Um I wrote Death as this mischievous roommate that they they have come to love and appreciate. He's he's not there to 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 be feared. He's there to have conversations with and to be to, to for for death in a way to to help Hakawati accept mm-hmm. that his life had challenges, but also that he's about to lose his his main his 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 partner his his, yeah. his soulmate. Some of that dialogue with death is is really interesting. <laughs> like it, it it's it's uh, it's heavy, but then sometimes it's kind of funny too. Like yeah. Um, now now it's wait your your book has won a lot of awards as well. And I don't want to go through the list because it's a long list. But the one I want to talk about is that um, you were a finalist for the Lambda Awards. Yes. And you've said that this was like a dream of yours when you were a kid, right? It was when I was like 15, 16, something around that, when I was in my teenage days. How did you even hear about these that's awards? That's the funny thing. When I was in Damascus, we only had two TV channels. Yeah. And that's about it. Uh, and they had the news on and my father and mother were watching the news and I was sitting there with them. And the TV, sh- the, the the news brought a report talking about mocking, really, and calling, oh, yeah, okay. mocking the fact that LGBTQ folks had an award celebrating their own books. Right. So it's it was such a an interesting like a news flash. It was like the shortest thing, like it was like a minute, but it stuck with me so long, like the Lambda Awards. Yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> like, of course, I didn't share with my parents. Yeah. My father was like, like ticking his tongue being seriously and my mother is like turn this off and stuff like that and i am like holy crap that's the most amazing thing ever yeah and then (laughs) yeah and then i grew up just wanting to win this award just being like i've heard about you on tv and one day i'm going to win it yeah and and amazingly enough i mean you were a finalist Mm -hmm. but you didn't get to go i didn't get what happened um i 
I got denied entry to the U.S. Uh, before, so I have a visa and everything, but I got okay. denied entry to the U.S. And I don't want to end up another headline, to be honest. I don't want to be yeah, fair enough. arrested and, and, and sent back to Syria. And like and that happened before multiple yeah. times, so I'm I'm not really taking my chances over that. No, fair enough. And, and obviously, we hope that things change, and uh, hopefully you'll be up for another Lambda Award, and you'll get to be there Oh, wait in, for the next in person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I definitely hope you keep writing. I think it's a great gift that you're putting out there in the universe Thank and uh, I'm sure you will be up for plenty of other awards for plenty of other books. Thank you. Um, what's next for you? I believe you have your annual event, A Night in Damascus. An evening up. in Damascus. An so, evening in Damascus, yes. sorry. So the evening in Damascus is happening on the 31st of July. It is uh, a fundraiser that I run uh, annually. This is the fourth year that I do the evening in Damascus. Um, it serves two purposes. A, to raise funds for queer and trans refugees to come to Canada. All the money would go uh, to a private sponsorship group, just like the group that brought me here to Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, the money this year is going for two lesbian uh, couple from Syria to come to Canada. Um, and the other thing is it's a window, in my opinion, it's a pin- window f- for Vancouverites to actually see a different narrative of Syria. Yeah. To stay not away what's from, on the news. Not exactly. It's it's about like trying our amazing food and and seeing us dance and listen to our cool music because we have some really cool music <laughs> and um, hear me do some storytelling and I cool. promise I'm going to be prepared with some beautiful stories. I'm sure you will. Be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where yeah. can where can people get more information on an evening in Damascus? Eveningindamascus.com. Just go to uh, the website and you'll find all the information. Perfect. Yeah. Um, if someone wants to get in touch with you or find out more about how they can help the causes that you're supporting with LGBTQ uh, refugees, uh, where should they go? How do they get in contact? Uh, you can get all of my information, all of uh, my calendar, what I'm doing next on my website. So it is uh, www.dannyramadan.com. That is D. A N N Y R A M A D A N dot com. Um, yeah, and you can send me an email on hello at Cool. That's how I got in touch with you. That is exactly (laughs) how you did it. Well, my man, keep up the good fight. Your journey is incredible, and this city is truly lucky to have you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, Danny Ramadan, a shining example of courage, goodness, and kindness. I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. This is Van Color. Peace.